Hey there, welcome to The Deeper Podcast, a podcast that's all about how we live lives that unleash a little bit more courage for us to love the hell out of this world. My name is Robert Sean, I'm one of your hosts, and we are coming to the end of our series, Gender Fluent, where we are exploring all of the strange and sacred natures of gender, and I have to say, it's been really cool seeing how this community has been responding to this series. It's not one that I think you picked from the menu as like, yeah, I really think we need five weeks about gender. And yet here we are continuing to find both mystery, beauty, confusion, and also maybe a little bit of liberation in this work together. Today, we are hearing from Reverend Elaine. Elaine is diving into the kind of questions that come up with feeling stuck in gender roles. You know, especially for people who identify as heterosexual, who identify as cisgender, which means that the gender um, that you feel aligns with the sex that you were assigned at birth, it can be a challenge to inherit a set of gender roles that even with those sets of alignments, um, even though you are kind of the quote-unquote normative gender and sexuality, it can be hard to in- inherit gender roles um, that don't align with um, who you are, even when there is that sort of correspondence. And so uh, Elaine is diving into that. To kind of set it up, um, we invited a member of our community, Grace Wilkins, to give a little testimonial about their experience um, in their family and how they're raising their children in a gender creative way. So Grace is going to explain this uh, in a moment. One thing I'll tell you is that baby Rain is um, very active in engaging with their mom during this. So there'll be moments where you're like, what's going on? Why are people laughing? Um, If you were there in person, you would have seen uh, Baby Rain trying to engage with mom during that time. So I'm going to turn it over to Grace to kind of set the stage. And then I'll be back in a second. Hi, everybody. My name is Grace Wilkins. I use she, her pronouns. That's my husband, Hudson. He, him and our little baby Rain, they, them. (sighs) Flashback to 2020, and about six months into lockdown mode, I turned to my husband Hudson and said, you know what would go well here? A baby. (laughs) Like any parent, we were equally excited and terrified for the upcoming existence of a new little human in our lives. But as we started started discussing our parenting styles and how we'd like to ideally parent our child, we started talking about our kids' possible gender, and the whole idea of assigning a gender based on their genitals seemed not really important to do. After all, assigning a gender seemed like a guess to us anyway, and what if we were wrong? We were inspired by a friend of ours who chose not to assign a gender at birth to their kiddo, and after some discussion of our own, we believed we are resourced enough to take on something that could be difficult for some of our closest family and friends to understand, but like any parent, we think this might be the best way to raise our little human. After some research on the topic, we learned there are hundreds of parents who practice something called gender-creative parenting. The, the idea around gender creative parenting is to fully embody in, in our parenting the belief of radically accepting our child's full truth and minimizing our own assumptions and biases about who we think they are and will become based upon their anatomy. The first step we took to approach this way of parenting was by deciding to use they them pronouns for rain. Creative parenting helps us as parents debunk the myth that learning what our kiddos 
body looks like prepares us to better understand what they're going to grow up to be. To raise a child with the idea that everything is for everyone. To create a culture within our home that a parent's gender does not and should not be a deciding factor for whether or not certain activities, toys, personality characteristics, wants, needs, emotions, or ideas are okay or not okay to engage with. Rain is now 19 and a half months old, loves their mama, dada, dada, taquitos, the color yellow, and being chased around by the house by the tickle monster. As we continue to try and make space for our kiddos' full truth, Hudson and I have learned to become more accepting of our own full, complicated, messy selves. We're learning to set aside our unconscious, internalized beliefs that there are certain things we can't or shouldn't do because of our gender. We're learning to live the truth that everything really is for everyone. I love that. We are learning to live the truth that everything really is for everyone. Not only is this a learning that's happening for baby Rain, but also for Grace and Hudson. I think that's a really, really remarkable thing. And, you know, I, as a parent who inherited a child that has a gender identity, this has been a fun thing. Edit. I love that. We are learning to live the truth that everything really is for everyone. It is, I mean, just, I'm just struck with the beauty of the experience that they are giving Rain and Rain's invitation to define for them their own gender in the time that makes sense in their lives. And also grateful that it's not just Rain that's benefiting from it, but that Grace and Hudson are experiencing the fruits of that sort of interrogation. I wonder what it would be like for more of us to adopt this, even for ourselves uh, and each other to step out of these gender roles. Speaking of gender roles, the reading that kind of sets up the message today is one that Gretchen is going to share. It is from, or it is entitled, The Electable Female Candlelight Edit. Speaking of gender roles and the impossibilities of them, Gretchen is going to set up the sermon by sharing a reading from Claire Friedman entitled The Electable Female Candidate. It's slightly adapted from its original. According to a recent Gallup poll, 94% of Americans would vote for a woman for president. So why haven't we had a female in the White House? Simple. We haven't had the right candidate. The electable female candidate reaches across the aisle with soft, moisturized hands. <laughs> she knows how to fire a gun, but also has never held a gun and doesn't even know what a gun is. She's becoming a vegan, but stands behind Arby's and its commitments to the meats. She has the charisma of a charlatan, but the integrity of Charlie from Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. She's able to radically reshape society, but moderately. She was raised on a farm in the middle of Central Park. Her paternal grandfather is Ronald Reagan. Her maternal grandfather is FDR. Her son is Keanu Reeves. 
Her other son got on the USC crew team by practicing. She went to Harvard, but hated it. She has a diversified portfolio with a healthy annual yield of 18%, even though she invests only in companies that turn styrofoam cups into schools in Africa. She plans to donate her estate to charity upon her demise, which doctors say won't happen until at least 2039. She pays herself only 10% less than what she pays the men who work for her. <laughs> she promises to make a golden retriever her veep. His name is Buddy, and he has only three legs because he lost one in Nam. Buddy is socially liberal, but fiscally conservative. <laughs> She'll implement universal health care, but fund the entire program herself by holding a gluten-free bake sale. <laughs> she enjoys cooking festive dinners for her family and obliterating North Korea with nuclear weapons. When she gets an iPhone update alert, she installs it immediately. She never posts screenshots of her fortune cookie fortunes on Instagram because she knows no one cares. She does not aspire to host her own comedy podcast one day. She is Beyonce. She knows how to change a tire, fix a 3D printer, launch a torpedo, unlaunch a torpedo, and juggle wet bars of soap. She's a boomer, but she has a great sense of humor about the phrase, okay, boomer. She wears sensible shoes that are hot. She can bench press. That was my favorite line, too. <laughs> she can bench press 250, but has the lean muscles of a Zumba instructor. She's six feet tall and a quarter of a foot wide. Her breasts are large, but not obscene. Her rear is juicy. The only symptom of her period is that it makes her skinny. She glows in the dark, but in an extremely healthy, non-radioactive way. She loves babies, even the ugly ones, although she has never participated in a gender reveal party. She is everything to everyone. She would be pleased to be the president, but she is just not ambitious enough to run. Well, with the obvious complexities of gender roles and the impossibility that is heaped upon women in this society, I'm going to turn it over to Elaine to speak into that reality from her life. After I graduated from college, I served in the U.S. Peace Corps on a small desert island in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean. The experience felt so deeply uncomfortable at times. I felt so alone. I felt like I didn't know what I was doing. I didn't know how to navigate this very strange, loosely defined venture in just the right way. And so from time to time, I would daydream that I would be just sick enough or just injured enough to get medevaced back to the United States. Uh, where everything would be familiar and comfortable and I wouldn't be responsible for anything difficult. It was just a daydream, but that's kind of how I felt when I found out that gender would be our focus this month. <laughs> Uncomfortable enough to daydream that maybe something would happen where I didn't actually have to discuss this topic in front of a group of people. 
Like maybe Sean or Gretchen would email me and say, hey, I have such passion and such mastery around gender that I was wondering if I could have your Sunday too, Elaine. And I would generously say yes, and then I would go on to more comfortable things. Underneath my discomfort around publicly addressing gender in any way was a frozenness in this mix of discussing gender sacredness, gender play, gender expansiveness and creativity as a congregation, what did I have to offer? And all I found was a blankness and the desire to take a nap, <laughs> to fall asleep to the whole topic of gender. Suspicious of this desire to fall asleep to the gender conversation, I dug a little deeper and I found something else buried under all the blankets. And it was anger. I don't like anger. It's very uncomfortable. Anger is an important messenger about our boundaries and it helps us protect ourselves and the people we love the most. And often, personally, I would rather fall asleep under the covers than deal with anger. Alongside my gender, anger was also a serving of gender embarrassment. Because when I thought about my personal experiences of gender in recent years, it wasn't gender joy or gender curiosity. And I didn't wonder if gender exploration had something in store for me. I mostly tapped into a sense of exhaustion around never-ending domestic labor negotiations and a sense of being stuck in a matrix of gender roles, a matrix that I never asked for and had naively thought that I could avoid with some earnest feminist awareness and some kind of really good chore chart. What on earth was going on here? Gender roles have always been something to navigate, but I haven't always felt this stuck. And I want to acknowledge that this gender stuckness lives within so many layers of privilege in my life as a cisgender, straight, white woman. The world is set up for my ease in so many ways. But there were times when I felt more gender free and less gender stuck. Let me show you what I mean with some photos. All right, this is a photo from a Unitarian Universalist youth conference in 1994. Can you find me? I'm in the upper right hand corner there. And the point of this image is that I'm wearing my dad's sweater and probably also his jeans. Being a teenager during the 1990s, grunge trends meant that I was often either wearing men's clothing from the thrift store or stolen from my father's closet. I felt gender freedom in wearing men's clothes because it tempered the girlier trends that could feel confining and confusing and overly sexualized. Next slide. All right, then I got to college and I started to experiment more. And a lot of this had to do with hair. I shaved my head, as you can see here. 
This felt daring, this felt freeing, like a big visible rejection of gender expectations. I stopped shaving my legs. I definitely scandalized my Mormon cousins with my underarm hair on a family vacation. <laughs> and to be totally transparent, I also shaved my head like this because I remembered that my boyfriend at the time had told me he thought it would look good on me. <clears throat> he later informed me that he hadn't said that. <laughs> you can't win them all. All right, the next shot. So, hey, this is just a touch of drag here. This is me dressed up in a suit and a bow tie for a, the annual dance at my very small college where everyone dressed in drag. It was called Mary B. James. Does, I'm just curious now that I said that. Does anybody know where I went to college? Of course, yes! Phil Hooper, my fellow Grinnell College alum. <laughs> so, this was at Grinnell College. This night was such a thrill. It was so exciting to wonder how people would see me, wondering what I would discover inside myself, to move through a party in a masculine guise. I was also glad to take off the suit that was several sizes too large at the end of the night, but this was definitely freeing gender play. Next slide. All right, so this, these are photos of my friend Ellen and me. Sorry, the scanner cut off Ellen's head. These were taken for the college yearbook to document our participation in supporting the Stonewall Resource Center, the LGBTQ plus center on our college campus. If anyone would have asked me at the time, I would have told them that I was volunteering as an ally who in the parlance of the time was straight but not narrow. But there's an additional piece here, which is that when I was in college, I discovered that I loved the company of women, all different kinds of women, including women who loved other women. What I'm trying to say is that I discovered that lesbians are awesome, and I liked who I was in the company of the queer women I met, and I had lesbian aspirations. <clears throat> so I would volunteer <laughs> at the Stonewall Resource Center, and at the end of my shift, I would check out some books and take them home. I read about gender and <laughs> Gretchen's dying. <laughs> I read about gender and sexuality. I read comics and memoirs, and I generally tried to study up on how to become a lesbian because I was missing one key ingredient, which is an attraction to women. <laughs> but I thought that maybe it was just down there really deep inside and I could find it through intensive study of texts in my dorm room. <laughs> and you may be asking yourself right now, Elaine, why are you talking about sexuality when this series is obviously about gender? <clears throat> and the answer is this. I was trying to use sexuality to solve a gender problem. In my 19-year-old mind, I hope that being in a relationship with a woman could bring me gender freedom in two ways. Number one, it would release me from all the irritating and burdensome expectations of what I'd been told women should be and should do to attract and keep a male partner. 
And secondly, it would relieve me of wondering whether I was doing femininity wrong. I was never particularly girly. And at the time, I thought that dating women would release me fully from the project of girling how a girl is supposed to girl, in the words of Lauren Farley. It turns out that you can't turn yourself gay through studying books from the library, <laughs> even if your goal is a little more gender freedom. All right, next slide. So years pass, and they pass, and soon I am marrying this guy, Jason Tenbrink. What a guy. <laughs> Here are some fun facts about Jason Tenbrink. He was raised in a Unitarian Universalist church, and he participated in the predecessor to our Our Whole Lives sexuality education curriculum. It was AYS for all you old school Unitarian Universalists. He took a gender and women's study course in college, and he considers himself a feminist. We met at a Unitarian Universalist seminary. And during that time of seminary courtship, he often wore these flowy, pastel-colored pants to class. We called these his Nancy pants because they were handed down to him from our classmate named Nancy. <laughs> so given what I've shared thus far, Neither one of us, clearly, is going to have any challenges with feeling stuck in gender roles in this marriage. And there is nothing gendered in this photograph. <laughs> in all seriousness, we had a really wonderful wedding. And the gendered aspects of those wedding, that wedding, it felt like a good fit. It was a happy time. We're moving on to the next chapter now. Next slide. All right, this is a photo of Jason and me in the weeks before our first child, Sarah, was born. On the spectrum of gender freedom, for me, personally, in my experience, pregnancy and the time immediately surrounding childbirth were experiences of gender euphoria. I felt so at home in my body, amazed by my body, and identifying in this deep, ancestral way with being a woman. I know that this is not a universal experience, but I share it because it's significant in what happens next. Next slide. All right. It's a girl. I just had to share this in light of our recent conversations. Here we are out just hours after Sarah was born outside the birth center. And uh, the sole focus of this gigantic flag by the side of the road is her anatomy. Um, but at the time, it actually felt normal and very exciting to be the person associated with this flag. I was over the moon. OK, so let's go on to the next slide, which is a less gendered photo of us. So I think Sarah's a day old here. <clears throat> From the gender euphoria of pregnancy and those kind of peri-childbirth times, I transitioned into parenthood. And both of us transitioned together into parenthood. And when Jason goes back to work, I stay home with the baby. It feels practical. We both choose it freely. At least we're pretty sure we choose it freely. And this is when the gender role shift really begins for us. All right, we're done with the slides for now. All right, so here's a poem from Anne Barker. 
Could we talk about the dissonance between what we teach our children and how we live our lives? Could we talk about sharing and how we don't? Could we talk about the ways that privilege binds us to suffering, the ways that suffering starves us of freedom, the ways that freedom isn't freedom and never was? Could we talk about love? When Jason and I became parents, we became enmeshed deeper and deeper into prescribed gender roles with a root system that goes as far back as patriarchy. And we genuinely did not see this coming. We thought that we were choosing and in control. We were educated, politically conscious, feminist Unitarians who would keep things very egalitarian and escape the embodied, inherited legacy of gender roles and gender norms because we were smart and thoughtful people. But it turns out something bigger would also claim us. A gendered system silently and stealthily inserted itself into the smallest movements and choices of our family. A choreography that was familiar, that was even useful, inviting us into moves that we knew in our bones. And we began the process of forgetting that we had choices about how to dance. Parenting, and any caregiving really, necessitates a division of labor. It invites you, and maybe even forces you, to create default settings in the systems that keep the whole operation afloat. And in our cisgender hetero marriage, we had both received intensive, lifelong training from all aspects of our environment in our particular gender roles within a relationship that looked like ours. So we took on the roles that we had been trained for. But they came with side effects. Ann Barker asks us, can we talk about sharing and how we don't? In many ways, gender roles are the opposite of sharing. And there is so much that I didn't want to share aloud with you in this space this morning because, frankly, I am just really tired of it. And I feel mad and embarrassed and stuck. I didn't want to tell you that when I ask myself how I'm experiencing gender right now, the first thing that leaps to mind is the never-ending mental calculations of who did what and what is fair and whether I am doing this thing right now because I want to or because it makes the most sense or because I'm the mom playing out a role that I'm too tired to fight because that would be even more work. I don't want to talk about how I still don't know how to change a bike tire or a car tire and I still don't know what an Allen wrench is. I don't want to talk about holding the mental load of all the cleaning and all the shopping and the cooking and the appointments and the general household logistics. I don't want to talk about how hard it is at this point to make space for my husband to hold those tasks and logistics together with me because he does it in ways that bother me and don't meet my expectations. And I resent 
the emotional energy it would take to orient him to the entire universe of household management that I have created that is tailored to me and how I think and my priorities. And I don't want to talk about how I never mention these things to most of my friends and colleagues because I don't want them to pass judgment on Jason, whom I genuinely love and respect deeply. And I don't want them to judge the dynamics of our marriage. And also, I don't want to talk about it because even though I don't quite have the words for it, I have this strong inner inkling that this is all about more than what my husband and I choose to do or not do. It is not true that if Jason would just do all the tasks correctly all the time, I would have my gender freedom. <laughs> the problem is something much bigger and more insidious than that. In her book, Genders, Catherine Bond Stockton re references our reading from this morning, The Electable Female Candidate, wherein the joke is that women have to be somehow all things to all people all the time in order to do modern womanhood right, which is hilariously and enragingly impossible and very familiar. And then Stockton poses this equation. Woman equals man plus woman. As Stockton writes, even as conditions on the ground change for women, as they increasingly enter historically masculine roles, they must do men's work while they preserve a woman's way of doing it, which includes manliness. Evidently, they have to be just like men and women in their womanly ways of being. A woman has the freedom to move outside of her prescribed gender realm as long as she continues to handle all of her pre-existing womanly roles and responsibilities. So it's just that embracing this freedom to step into historically masculine roles also happens to come with a lot of extra work. The more freedom women embrace, the more work women receive. The work of being like men and women, lest their original womanly obligations be neglected. Otherwise, she would risk womaning so wrong that she might break the gender equation and we don't want her to fail because that would disappoint everyone. All right, I'm done with this slide now. <laughs> the poet asks us, could we talk about ways, the ways that freedom isn't freedom and never was? Given the reality of the insidious gender role matrix, what does real gender freedom look like? Does it look like sharing absolutely everything, totally, equally, all of the time? Does it look like refusing to perform the gender roles we've inherited, which frankly are sometimes roles that offer connection and a sense of competence and deep satisfaction? I don't think so. Gender freedom means that no one is expected to do what is actually impossible. Gender freedom means that no one is forced to choose between disappointing everyone and betraying themselves. 
Gender freedom means being understood as one glorious human being whose human capacities and limitations are respected and embraced, who shares labor in their home and in the world in ways that feel fitting and humane and life-giving, and expresses themselves with freedom and pleasure and imagination. That's the gender freedom that I want. And that's the freedom I judged myself for not feeling as we entered into this series. When instead I felt anger and embarrassment and a sense of being stuck. And in using the word embarrassment, I knew it wasn't actually embarrassment. Embarrassment is a rather fleeting feeling of discomfort. It wasn't embarrassment, it was shame. Shame that I still had not figured out how to disentangle myself from the entrenched gender roles that I thought I was too clever to succumb to in the first place. The shame of feeling like a bad feminist. The shame of very obviously not being able to do it all and be everything to everyone all the time, but deep down still buying into the idea that it's possible. Gender shame is so familiar to so many of us. That sense that when we look at the gender expectations the world puts on us, gender shame is familiar to so many of us. The sense that when we look at the gender expectation the world puts on us, we feel that we are actually not enough. We should be doing better, doing more, checking all the boxes, pleasing all the people to please. And what I love about being a Unitarian Universalist is that we are committed to telling the truth together. We tell the truth about what it's really like to be human. We tell the truth about the inherent wholeness and sacredness of every person. And the truth about what is actually impossible and what is so beautifully possible. And we know that when we tell the truth, even when we haven't gotten everything figured out, which is actually very quite, quite rare, even when we are still stuck in the matrix, we tell the truth and we snuff out shame. We weaken oppressive systems that rely on our silence and compliance. We ignite the imagination and we open doors to liberation for ourselves and for everybody. There may be no more faithful act than telling the truth. May our truth-telling bring us ever closer to gender freedom and all the freedom, all the freedom that is so beautifully possible when we love and we celebrate ourselves and everyone for the finite, creative, lovable, and glorious creatures we are. May it be so. Amen. Amen, amen, amen. I, oh, this series is so good, y'all. I am just uh, so appreciative of Elaine stepping into her truth and the complexities of the shame and the ways it plays into these questions of gender roles and also the liberation that is possible. The gender freedom, the freedom for all people. It is so beautiful that uh, we can live for each other. We can be for each other if only we're giving each other that opportunity.
give ourselves that space. So I'm just so grateful. I uh, wish we had time today to dive into some of the questions in the question box. We are going to be doing a special episode next week where we answer all of the questions we have not gotten to on the podcast or answered in person. So stay tuned for that. Thank you for everyone who is a part of our community who financially contributes so that we're able to do things like produce this podcast and have these really, really phenomenal conversations about gender. We're really grateful for that. Can't wait for next week where we're going to be tackling some of the uh, gender propaganda that is coming from the right and giving us a faithful response to it and answering, I think, a lot of the questions that you have about what's going on right now with all these laws that are being passed against trans uh, people getting healthcare and even uh, outlying drag. So can't wait for that conversation.